I'm Nancy Rosenblum, co-editor of the Annual Review of Political Science. Today I'm in Berkeley talking with Hannah Pitkin. Hannah is Professor Emerita from the University of California at Berkeley, which is also her alma mater. She's one of the Berkeley School of Scholars and unusually dedicated teachers who made the university a mecca for graduate students in political theory. Hannah is the author of books that are familiar to all of us, The Concept of Representation, Wittgenstein and Justice, Fortune is a Woman, Gender and Politics in the Thought of Machiavelli, and The Attack of the Blob, Hannah Arendt's Concept of the Social. Her influential articles include the two-part essay, Obligation and Consent. Hannah Pitkin is a winner of the 2003 Schütte Prize in Political Science for her groundbreaking theoretical work predominantly on the problem of representation. Hannah, let's begin with the question of origins. I was born in Berlin, the child of Jewish intellectual left-wingers in 1931. It was not a good place to be born out of that background. And in 1933, my parents got us out of there. No doubt I would be dead now if they hadn't. Uh, I'm pretty old, actually, I could be dead. Uh, <laughs> we went first uh, to Oslo, Norway, because my father was a Freudian psychoanalyst, and he had trained some Norwegian analysts who had gone back to Norway to practice, and who, no doubt seeing the circumstances in Germany, invited him to come to Oslo and start a study mm -hmm. group there. And so we went there. But for various reasons, my parents wanted to get back to the continent and two years later we moved to Prague where there were a lot of German Jewish refugee analysts and I think by the time that we went back to Prague my parents knew that that was temporary because everyone was waiting with bated breath mm -hmm. to see when the Anschluss would be with Germany taking over Austria and Austria had its anti-Semites of its own and so they began uh, applications to come to the United States. And when I was six, almost seven, we came to Los Angeles, where there were also lots of Jewish refugee analysts. And each time my father was invited, I don't know the details, I suppose they guaranteed him some income for a period or something. So you've talked a little bit about coming here to the United States. What were the early influences, either from your family or a school, that foreshadow your life as an intellectual? Well, I suppose the first and obvious influence is the refugee status itself. Uh, the change in languages, uh, the question, which I was old enough to ask, at least in Prague, if not before, of why do we keep moving like this? I mean, I knew uh -huh. that there was this person called Hitler and so forth. Uh, my parents explained at my level as best they could. So an interest in world politics and an interest in languages surely go back to that. And then my parents were some sort of Marxists, not party members ever, but what came to be called fellow travelers. Mm -hmm. And I had an aunt who was a party member who lived with us for a time in Berlin before we left. Uh, so that too would enter into that. So you were surrounded by political conversation? Yes, now obviously I'm sure there were things not discussed in front of me, which I learned about later. 
You've said uh, your work turns on language and words, and you said you have an idiosyncratic pleasure in words, and you've just given one explanation that is the shift of languages. But I'm wondering whether your father, who was the famous psychoanalyst Otto Fenichel, who was part of the heroic early years of psychoanalysis, whether that wasn't third generation, not second. Third generation. That is to say, not it was analyzed still the heroic by Freud. Era. But heroic, why not? <laughs> sure. And, and a teacher, and therefore heroic to many analysts. Right. Yes, he was. And, and eventually so, wrote an important teaching book. That's right, The Theory of Neurosis. Yes. So was, was that an influence? I, I, I would imagine the psychoanalysis had some um, effect on your attention to words. This is what my question is. It must have. Uh, it was part of my parents' more general interest in words and ideas. My mother, for instance, was very interested in uh, pedagogy. Uh, she was for a time a nursery school teacher, and uh, some psychoanalysts, including my father, were interested in how to bring up children that are not so neurotic. And so, um, plus they were both very playful people and readers. And so there were lots of word games discussions of books, reading aloud to each other, mm -hmm. reading aloud to me, of course, uh, making up stories and poems and things with me or for me, first for me, later also with me. Do you remember any early books that affected you most from childhood? From childhood? Well, sure. <laughs> there was an alphabet picture book which um, I wanted very much for my parents to teach me to read mm -hmm. because I saw them reading all the time and I wanted to be like, I thought I was like them as small children do and I wanted to be more like them. Uh, but my mother felt that she had been forced to, be, to behave herself and learn properly too early yeah. and had not had yeah. a happy childhood as a result. She wanted me to have a happy childhood so she refused to teach me to read. <laughs> And when I first first put in a nursery school, I didn't like it. I promptly got sick, and while I was sick in bed, I asked her, why do I have to go to this school? And she said, well, you go to school, you learn to write and to read. You want to learn to read, don't you? And I, had to conf I didn't have to confess. I said, would you just hand me that alphabet book? And I taught myself the alphabet while I was in bed before I had to. My mother was nice enough to find me a better nursery school, and it all worked out in the end. But that's, there's an early influence for you. When, then, did you decide on an academic career? How old were you, and did you always know that it would be in something like political theory? Good God, no. Um, I always did well in school, yeah. and I kept getting boosted along in the educational process because I'd been doing well. And I don't know that I ever decided I wanted an academic career. I certainly can remember in the rigors of graduate school and dissertation writing, seriously considering some other career instead. So I was not committed to that. I was certainly committed to intellectual enterprise. Mm -hmm. That was, in many respects, my inner life. What was your first job? My very first job was probably tutoring a younger child in math courses and maybe other things as well. 
So teaching from very early. Actually, I have a much earlier story than that, but it's not a job, which is that for a time my mother had a nursery school, ran a nursery school in her own living room, which I was part of, and it, I guess I was still a toddler or barely beyond. And at some point, I apparently took a handkerchief and went around to all the other children and had them blow their noses. So if you consider that a teacherly role, yes. I had learned quite early from my mother. But from the start, you saw this career, once it became a career, as much about teaching as it was about writing. And that's interesting. Yes, I think that's true. Right. Yes. I did quite a bit of informal and other teaching yeah. before I ever got yeah. to it's teaching assistant status as a, as a graduate student. It's not so usual. Uh, the Concept of Representation was your first book. Uh, Carl Friedrich reviewed it, I think, in the annual <laughs> review of politi uh, the American Political Science Review, and he praised it in his inimitable fashion. He wrote, a masterly treatment of which I can say that I would be proud to have done it. That book has had a very long life. It's still on my students' uh, bookshelves. What led you to that project? What led me to that project was that as a first-year graduate student at UCLA, incidentally, I'm an alumna of both UCLA and Berkeley, oh. alternating. Oh. Um, and in, I did my, the, my first year of graduate work at UCLA, and I was in a seminar with Thomas Jenkin, and uh, Weldon's The Vocabulary of Politics had just come out. It was oh. just the beginning of an interest in political concepts uh -huh. as a subfield of the subfield. Yeah. And so he had us choose from a list of politically, political science concepts and write a pa our seminar paper on one of them. And I chose, for no good reason, representation. And then I came to, uh, I worked for a while, I came to Berkeley, I went back to graduate school and uh, applied in political science with a intent to specialize in political theory because that was the only thing I felt I could get a fellowship in at that point because that was what I had studied up to that point. And uh, I had met, I had a friend who was then for a time on the Berkeley faculty in philosophy, Stanley Cavell, and talking with him I learned a little bit about the work of J.L. Austin and uh, mm -hmm. ordinary language mm -hmm. philosophy, as it's sometimes mm -hmm. called. And I remember asking Sheldon Wolin, who was to chair my dissertation and for whom I had been a teaching assistant, whether I might write a dissertation on some concept and use those techniques somehow. I didn't know what mm -hmm. I was talking about, right. but I had. And he said, why not? And I said, for instance, something like the concept of representation, because of that paper that I'd written. And he said, sure. So that's how that began. Had no idea where I was going to go or where it was going to go, really. And therefore, it took me a very long time of thoughtsing around with what eventually became the first chapter. Years. Now I have to ask you a question that a graduate student of mine wanted me to ask, which is that looking back now at that book, is there anything you would change or do differently? Or have new things happened in either institutional design or psychology or something to make you want rethink anything you wrote? As so often when I'm presented with a question, I want to say yes and no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
No, in the sense that I stopped thinking about representation after I published the book. Yeah. And that's a general pattern for me. It's yeah. almost uh, the sort of, uh, I think, Woody Allen or Marx Brothers, I'm not sure. Uh, any club that would welcome me, I wouldn't want to be a member of. It, anything I've written on is not really worth giving much attention to. I tend to drop things cold once I've finished a piece of work on them. And so I dropped representation. But then uh, I got the, the Schütte Prize that you mentioned for that book. And they demanded, in order for me to get the prize, that I go there and present a paper on that topic. Huh? And I said, I haven't touched it for decades. And they said, doesn't matter. So I thought about it, and I thought about it. And the fact is that it was not hard for me to see that there was something I had not considered in that book that I should have considered in that book. And I wrote a little essay about that, which they published. Um, basically, the, the book did not address the question of whether there really can be such a thing as democracy by means of representation, or whether maybe those two concepts are somewhat yeah. in tension or at odds. Yeah. Well, that's a, a terrific segue to the next question I was going to ask you, which is that a great deal of democratic theory today, people writing in our field, um, are ambivalent at best about representation. And you've said a couple of things. You've said on the one hand, and this is from the book, that representation, delegation, coordination, federation, and other kinds of devolution are compatible with democracy. But you've also expressed the thought that they're in an uneasy alliance. So talk a little bit about that, and maybe going back to the essay that you just spoke of. Well, uh, democracy is one of those all-purpose words. But if by democracy you mean something like the demos governing itself, or the demos governing the state, right. or the polis. And the ambiguity is already built into demos. Do you mean the demos is distinct from some other class or segment of society ruling the whole of society? Or do you mean everybody yeah. ruling themselves together somehow? I'm inclined to the latter reading when I call myself a small-d Democrat. And if you take that reading, then the difficulty, then there's great difficulty about having democracy in any large collection of people at all, because they can't all meet together and talk to each other. And even if they had email or Facebook or whatever, there are limits to how many people's entries you can listen to or look at. But in any case, when we're trying to decide whether a particular state or government or organization is democratic, what we're really talking about is whether there's something like popular self-government going on there or not. And there can be hundreds of criteria and ways of measuring along those criteria in which you somehow total up to an overall decision. This was more democratic than that, or this country, or this period, or this institution contributed to, dem to democracy or undermined democracy. And that's one reason why the term's so slippery. Yeah. And representation can make 
a large society, polis, nation, governable in a relatively democratic way. But it also obviously is no total substitute for the image of total self-government such as a small group can have. And you have to make your evaluative decision, your judgment, I will say. Evaluative is likely to conjure up things I didn't mean. Let's say your judgment. I think these thoughts, and your book in particular, are especially relevant for democratic theorists today who are do who are thinking up all kinds of imaginative designs. Sometimes they're actual experiments like these citizens' juries that have been tried, and sometimes they're sort of imaginative things like having a litocracy. But in all of those cases, the question of what makes them representative, right? Why can they stand for or act for? What makes them representative or what makes them democratic? Exactly. Related, but not the same way. So the, the, well, we'll come back to this, I hope, a little bit at the end. But um, this is very live in democratic theory today. I know that. I believe that's why that book got the prize that it did. Ah. It's not the book's merit, really. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll let that I'll let that pass. Um, the approach, the conceptual approach that you took in the concept of representation, really became the focus of your work on Wittgenstein. And I'm going to read the, something. Uh, Since human beings are not merely political animals, but also language-using animals, their behavior is shaped by ideas. What they do and how they do it depends upon how they see themselves in their world. And this, in turn, depends upon the concepts through which they see. And so you concluded that Wittgenstein's con- contribution to political theory is a, make us an awareness of concepts, a sensitivity to the theorist's use of language. I'm wondering, today, this seems evident to us. When you wrote, was it not? What, what was political theory like at the time that made this, in a sense, a manifesto? I guess I want to refer back to what I said about the political theory was just beginning to yeah. have an yeah. active interest in that with the appearance of Weldon's book, as far as I know, though. Mm-hmm. In a way, of course, insofar as political theory has always involved textual analysis, it has, of course, always involved attention to words and changing meanings of right. words and interpretation of ambiguous concepts and so forth and so on. But to make it an explicit focus and as it were almost a technical methodology that was new and of course that has its dangers because if it becomes a technical methodology it's likely to you lose contact with the substance of uh, what's being studied more energy goes into learning as it were the methodology do you think that's happened to people who do conceptual analysis today that that what started out as a very careful and distinctive approach has lost its edge? No, I didn't mean to say that, and I'm not sure that I am up on reading people who mm-hmm. do conceptual analysis mm-hmm. today to a point where I could make that judgment. I think it's a, it's a constant danger with any new way of proceeding in an intellectual field, is you want to teach other people how to do this productive mode of thought, and so you, for instance, you teach a course on it, but that course takes up time, which could have been spent on some other course, maybe with a more substantive content. That's just one example. You're still teaching graduate courses. Is this the sort of thing you do in your courses today? Yes, it is. 
uh, I have all along from time to time done things that involved conceptual analysis. It's been quite a while since I devoted a whole course to the methodology, as it were. Right. But you introduce it implicitly when you study, for example, I use the concept. It. Yes. And in the right. course of, if I'm using it in a course, I have to teach some of it to the students. All right, speaking of new, let's turn to your study of Machiavelli's republicanism and its connection to heroism and militarism and its denigration of the private and the household. You probed his anxiety about being sufficiently masculine, his concern over what it means to be a man. And you brought manliness to the forefront in terms that earlier studies of Machiavelli and virtue, right, and fortune really had not. I mean, this was an early work, um, relatively early work, of sort of what I'll call feminist studies of canonical thinkers that became a cottage industry later on. And I don't know about the cottage. Well, <laughs> all right, a mass industry, an industrial level manufacture. Um, and you t in talking about Machiavelli, you said that gender violence and domination and his fraught relation to the feminine as corrosive and dependent um, added up really to misogyny. And I'm wondering, I mean, what brought you to this? Were you always, did you always have a kind of gender consciousness in reading these books as a reader and interpreter? No, uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, I was uh, in a period when it had been an increasing amount of time since the last published book, and I was getting increasingly nervous about that. What's going to become of my career? It's been so long since I wrote anything. And uh, meanwhile, I was teaching uh, our basic undergraduate course in the history of Western political thought. And I gave one of my ordinary Machiavelli lectures which had a section in it about Machiavelli's conflicted conceptions of manhood. On the one hand, the clever fox who he was sort of identified with, and on the other hand, the great leader who would rally people uh, for Republican self-government in Italy. And as I was working, no, I gave this lecture, and there was a student in the class, I think maybe he was a graduate student in another department, or maybe he was just an undergraduate senior, who was Italian by extraction and came up after the lecture and was very impressed and excited and said that this was terribly important to him and so forth. And in my anxiety about my own publishing and writing, I went home and that stayed with me, sustained me for a day or two. And I thought, well, it is true that I've never read that anywhere. That is my own. Why don't I just write a short, simple article about it and publish that? And so I set about doing that. It seemed like something bounded, you know, that mm -hmm. didn't mm -hmm. require a lot of investment of myself. And I was going along doing that when it suddenly crossed my mind, you know, here you are writing about this guy's conflicted concepts of manhood, you, a woman, and you don't know anything about what was going on in the family at the time and what his own family situation was. And I thought, well, I should have a footnote on that. And so I pulled a couple of books off the shelf that seemed to me likely to have the information I needed. Uh, Burkhart on the civilization of the Renaissance in Italy and Aria's Centuries of Childhood. Mm -hmm. And by God, they contradicted each other. 
So I didn't know what to put in my footnote. So I had a research project and I went off to the library and began to research it. And then I can remember some months later having lunch with Norman Jacobson in this department and saying to him, I've got the makings of an article and it's got a footnote that is longer than the rest of the article. What shall I do? And that was when it became clear to me that I had book going. So it was not out of feminism that mm -hmm. that book began, nor did feminism grow out of it really. Um, in one way my feminism came from my mother. She fought those battles when she was a girl. She went to the university when it had barely begun to be possible for a woman to go to university in Germany. Mm -hmm. She, in all sorts of ways, was a professional woman and uh, she and my father, I think, shared an unquestioned assumption that of course women could think like men and uh, should raise children together with men, etc., etc., etc. So it was not a big issue for me. It was taken for granted at home. And so I sort of took it for granted. But on the other hand, uh, I was made aware of what the situation was like for women in the university by my graduate students fairly far along in my career when Title IX was enacted yeah. and there began to be a feminist movement in America. Sort of like the feminist movement that my mother was part of in Germany before, mm -hmm. not, but of course the conditions were different. And from listening to my women students, whom I had, of course, always treated like students, male, female, what, what's the point of that? Yeah. But listening to them about their learning conditions and what teachers said to them and what their parents expected of them and said to them, I discovered the difficulties that most women had at that time in academia and as intellectuals. And uh, I don't know if I became a feminist because I don't know if I'm entitled to that laudatory uh, classification because I'm not really for women's liberation as such or women's rights. I'm for people's rights. And people's Well, a fair definition liberation. of feminism, although not a radical one, just is equal rights. Well, then why call it feminism? Why not call it rights? Because it is a problem. Well, right. It is a problem. Yeah. It, I'm certainly not hostile. Going back to the Machiavellian book for just a second, um, was a psychoanalytic framework something you used in doing that work? I think a psychoanalytic framework, was, certainly is the quick answer, I think a psychoanalytic framework was something I used in all my writing. It didn't come out in the product as much before the Machiavelli book. I guess it did after the Machiavelli book. It came book. out, I think, in the Arendt book. In, again in the Arendt book, yes. Right. But also Do you want to talk about that a little bit, where it came from and why you found it useful? The psychoanalytic frame? Yeah. It, it was part of the household outlook in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was in analysis as a child. I sucked as my child, thumb as a child. Oh yes. I sucked my thumb until very late and I guess my parents thought that I was too shy and bookish and not really 
the kind of free child that my mother had imagined raising, I don't know. So they sent me to an analyst for years, oh yes. I used to lie to her. She, I, For me, the analyst was an ally of the grown-ups. And if I was going to have any privacy in life of my own, I wasn't about to confide everything in her. I mean, I confided some things, but I also lied. It was only later on as an adult when I got into difficulties and uh, undertook analysis, as it were, in my own name, <laughs> that uh, I got past that. Right. So I was going to say, as a result of your childhood experiences, but clearly you've contradicted it, that psychoanalysis was an intellectual framework for you, but therapy wasn't useful. But now you're saying that, in fact, psychoanalysis altogether has been important in your thinking and in your life. Certainly, although I, what I was also saying there was that there wasn't really therapy exactly in the early yeah, right, efforts. Right. Or well, it was a mixed bag, at least. Let's turn to the attack of the blob, which is a close study of Hannah Arendt's idea of the social, and blob evokes the science fiction sense of a collective life out of, out of control. And the book really is, if I'm reading it right, a critical attempt to explain how and why Hannah Arendt didn't entirely acknowledge the tension between depicting us as helpless on the one hand and as having agency on the other. And you pointed out that this is not an idiosyncratic problem of Arendt's, that it's a problem of political theory, that is how to, how to reconcile causal necessity on the one hand and, and effective agency on the other. So although this is a study of Hannah Arendt, you, towards the end, really do speak in your own voice and take up this... Um, the conditions that inhibit us, inhibit the capacity to control the consequences of our actions, that inhibit initiative or launching worthy projects or uh, political action altogether. Um, and you have a wonderful phrase, I think, which is the absence of politics where politics belongs. And I wonder, do you see that today, this absence of politics where politics belongs? Well, if you read the last chapter of the book, you know that I do. I do indeed. It's worse now than it was when I wrote it, yes. Talk a little bit about about that, about in, in particular, the, the, and I'll come back to this in a second, people experiencing our own activity as uh, overwhelmingly alien. Where in particular do you see it? Well, the most obvious thing that first comes to mind is that people correctly see, but maybe in some way misconstrue, the fact that as individuals they are powerless over all of the terrible conditions. I mean, people live disagreeable lives, and by and large, if you take us collectively, we're imposing what's disagreeable on ourselves. The, the, ecological global warming problem is the most obvious physical version of that. We all know that we're doing stuff which is going to destroy mankind and possibly life on Earth, and we keep doing it, and we have to keep doing it because people's jobs depend on it, and people's children's lives depend on their having jobs. We don't know how to reorganize ourselves, so we're doing it. To ourselves. Yeah. I, I was going to come back to this, but I'll, do, I'll, I'll ask you now. I mean, really, this question of initiative and action, especially collective action, is never more crucial than in 
what I call world historical, world altering conditions. And uh, nuclear weapons is clearly one. I almost said was, because it's been, in a sense, overshadowed by um, the question of climate, climate change. And I, I guess my question for you is, what's political theory's role in explaining to us our incapacities or inhibitions and uh, in, uh, in addressing the problem and in really teaching us our responsibilities in some way? Do you think political theory has that kind of explanatory and didactic purpose? I guess I'd, I'm at best very skeptical about whether political theory can do that. I don't know anything that can do that at this point. But I'm an old woman in a country whose world power may be declining, and so I'm likely to be pessimistic in places where others, younger, stronger, and better situated, see possibilities. It makes the teaching difficult to be so pessimistic. You don't want to talk like that to young people. But if that's what you see, that's sort of what you have to say. So, so this leads directly to asking about universities in the 1960s and 70s, which really were sites of political radicalism. How effective and in what areas we could talk about, but they were the sites of political radicalism. Uh, were you here then? And uh, were you a participant? And then let's compare it to what's going on at universities today. Yeah, I'm not going to be very good for you on this. Uh, I was not here then, that is to say, let's say during the Berkeley Free Speech yeah, Movement, yeah. 64, 65, 66, yeah. I was in Wisconsin. And it hadn't hit Wisconsin yet then. Wisconsin had its own form of student radicalism, but it was in, in the form of uh, groupy followers of left-wing professors, particularly in one department, uh, which is nothing to do with what was happening in Berkeley in right. the 60s. And so I wasn't here for that, but I came back in 60, summer 66. And so I was here for the later, less... The anti-war movement. The anti-war movement and the continuation of events from the mid-60s and the specific Berkeley developments out of that that maybe were not nationwide, but mm -hmm. there was a kind of, I believe it was called reconstitution effort of the university in, say, 68, 69, something like that, and the reaction against it in the 70s. In, I mean, in 1970 specifically. Uh, I think probably the uh, if we are trying to account for the student movement of the 60s, it had a lot of lot to do with the civil rights movement's early beginnings in mm -hmm. the summer in Mississippi in which a number of students from various parts of the country participated and then they came back to school. And that was certainly how the free speech movement uh, got going in Berkeley, was that those people wanted to continue their organizing activities in the civil rights field and the university wanted to keep its campus clean of political involvement. Let's compare that to the Occupy movement or the uh, movement to have universities divest of investments in fossil fuels. H well, how do they compare and uh, 
is there anything to be hopeful about in universities as sites of political organization? Certainly there is. Certainly there is, insofar as there's anything to be hopeful about at all. That's where you'll find it, yes. And it has something to do with young people's age, which is to say they're not yet habituated to accepting the mess that has been made for what it is, and, or as inevitable. It, they are likely still to have feelings like, I don't want to live like my parents. They obviously are not enjoying it, and I wouldn't either. So there's that, and then if they get good teachers, the university experience does invite them to think and to make new discoveries, to put together the ideas that they have gathered and that have been, as it were, put into them by their upbringing up to that point, put them together in new ways. Just as the DNA is recombined in each of us <laughs> from two sources, came from two other sources. Came. So they come to the university and they make new combinations. And they meet a lot of people who are different from them and they talk with them in discussion classes and over coffee, or I guess now they tweet each other. Are they as interested in politics as the students you remember from the past? No, uh, I think not. I think those students were more ho help hopeful about politics yeah. than the students are now, yeah, and I think, I think that's, that's partly because politics isn't as hopeful now as it used to be then. Right. Let's end by talking a little bit about the future of political theory. What, what is going on in the field, if anything, that particularly interests you? You know, I don't keep up with the field. I've been retired for quite a while. I've been teaching my own course, but uh, I don't have a whole lot of energy anymore, and so I mostly teach the same course again, <laughs> uh, which is in itself bad, but there it is. It's better than not teaching at all. I enjoy the teaching so much. Uh, I kind of regret that not many people do the sort of conceptual analysis that I do. I'm trying still to write something about the concept of authority. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to do that for maybe a dozen years, and I'm not sure that I will finish it in my lifetime, <laughs> or after. <laughs> Hannah, I described you as a distinguished scholar and teacher, one of the Berkeley School of Political Theorists. Is that a correct uh, representation? I'm glad you came back to that because uh, I know that there is this idea circling about and written on by some people, that there was something called the Berkeley School of Political Theory, and I don't really think there was. There was, of course, a group of political theorists and it was one of the best things of the whole of my life that I got to be a part of it. It was a marvelous experience, but I wouldn't think of it as a school. We really did very different things. There were uh, personal tensions uh, among us, although we were all, we all respected each other's work. And of course, the many members of the group were already there before I became a part of the group, or when I was still a student studying under the group, but uh, Sheldon Wallen's writings on the nature of political theory and on the nature of politics are 
ascribed by some of these interpreters who think there was a Berkeley school to all the members of the group. And in fact, they, they don't correspond to what Norman Jacobson wrote about. They don't correspond to what Jack Shar wrote about, although Sheldon and Jack wrote some things together and agreed about many things. They don't correspond to what I wrote about very much, maybe here and there, since I was a student of, she of Sheldon's. Uh, they don't correspond to what Mike Rogan wrote about. In the end, because of the Berkeley po student politics, we were all of us somehow more or less of the left. But that was an end point. Michael and Jack and I were the only ones who had any earlier background of leftish politics at all. Sheldon and Norman, uh, if they were radicalized, and I think they were in a way, it was because of their students and uh, by what happened to their students. So, not school, not a central figure, guru, leader, and not that much overlap. Well, you teach graduate students still. Um, yes. What, what encouragement do you give them, or what caution would you give them, the ones who are going to watch this video? Well, the encouragement is the pleasure of thinking, the pleasure of thinking together with other people who are enjoying thinking. And thinking not just, you know, puzzle solving or something like that, but thinking about the things that really matter to you, discovering how the things that really matter, discovering what things really matter to you, and how they connect with conditions in the real world, and how you are not alone in what matters to you and in what might be done about it. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you.